Maurice and his family were arrested and taken from their home in Athens, transported by cattle car to a destination unknown to them, a place of deprivation and unimaginable challenges. This is part three of the series Through the Eyes of a Child, and now, Life in a Concentration Camp. You're nine years old when right. you arrive in Bergen-Belsen, and your brother's two and a half years younger. After a 12-day train trip in cattle car, you arrive in this place. What? Tell me your first, how you got out, what your first impressions were. It was a, a train siding where we all came out of the cars, and we had to take our luggage and walk for about two miles in order to get to the actual concentration camp where they had assigned us barracks. We were uh, getting organized. Beds were assigned, and there were triple-deckers, which is a typical, uh, if you've seen pictures at all, of the typical uh, concentration camp uh, beds with slats and uh, I think they had some mattresses that were filled with uh, hay, probably, or something mm -hmm. like that. Were you able to stay with your family? Yes, we were. We were all, everybody in that group stayed together. You know, historically, we realized that uh, we were in a privileged part of the concentration camp that was reserved for high-value prisoners that could be exchanged for favors. And there were both Polish and Hungarian groups there besides the Spanish. You realized that you were in a more privileged situation in that camp, and how did you realize that? Well, by being together to begin with. As families, that was an immediate indication because nobody else in a usual, normal camp and we didn't have to work either but you knew you were aware of the fact that families were separated oh absolutely we how could, how we were you see. oh you how did you see that well we could see other prisoners going by on occasion and uh, sometimes we would have short talks with uh, somebody some of the prisoners going by it was fairly clear i mean it was there was no uh, question about it. There was something you'd made a note about the showers. We uh, were taken to a shower once every month, I think. Every month? Yes. Well, we had running water, but no showers. So you could wash yourself like laundry rooms. It was, uh, it was one of the decisions that uh, mother and father had to make as to who would take the children with them because it was men and, and women were separate. They went to shower separately. It turned out that uh, my brother went with my father and I ended up going with the women for some reason that I don't know mm how -hmm. they decided. So I was there during my time in Bergen-Belsen taking showers with uh, another 60 women 60 women and one little boy. <laughs> well, I wasn't the only one. 
and and there was no shower curtain or no no, oh, no, no it was no wide open how did you react to that i don't know whether that influenced my later life or not in in some way but uh i suspect it might have how, uh, how do you think it might have i have no idea exactly whether it would or how it would but it's certainly an, an i felt as an experience actually i was embarrassed at the yes, time of obviously course, of course and you maybe did you try not to look at the women or did you there it must have been a mixture of curiosity fascination embarrassment but to me it sounds like it feels like at this point that uh, it was you know i i just uh, looked at it as another event in re- in reality, I don't remember noticing anything specifically uh, about women like. Uh, Were they all naked? Yes, everybody was naked. Everybody was naked. So, so just seeing your mother naked, right. must have been yeah, a startling it, thing. It, it, of course, it's it's it, it's something that uh, I have completely erased from my memory. That's interesting. A survival strategy, maybe. That's true. I mean, there were a lot of survival strategies involved what, there. What were some, name some other ones. I can't uh, separate them from the fact that uh, this uh, fearless approach is a survival strategy. And it was very well instilled. I mean, it was not something that you were aware of or that you adopted or anything like that. It was just there. And you uh, never uh, at all, even under circumstances that were, may have been construed as threatening, it really made an impression. Yes. Well, you called it earlier, I think you called it a psychotic reality, right. almost. I mean, it was bizarre in certain ways. But bizarre in the fact that we probably as young children have not had a view of the world as the world should be. Yes. We had only a view of the world as the world was. How long were you there, actually? Uh, We were there for a year. Well, the the stories that I remember is that uh, as a community, we were very well organized. Uh, we had uh, people giving classes to younger kids, I mean, organized uh, schools. Mm. It was, uh, you know, very, very well organized community. We were make friends with uh, other kids our age, basically, and uh, we ended up playing all sorts of games, the young kids' games. Like what kind of games? Oh, no, like hide and seek, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, and... Uh, running around, exploring different parts of our camp. So you had freedom to to move around. To move camp. around in, uh, in our little stalag, which was uh, circumscribed by high fences. Mm-hmm. We invented games, mm-hmm. as you know, as kids do usually. We passed the time. It didn't feel like uh, we had... Uh, any lack of things to do. I remember uh, there were uh, one uh, situation, I remember when we were playing, they gave us 
uh, soap for laundry that was a powder, but it was a dark powder. We didn't know what it was like, ashes. So we didn't have much, it didn't foam or anything. We didn't have much respect for that. So one time, one of my friends and I took a box of that soap. We were near a fence, and uh, we made a mud puddle out of it, and we were building some little castles with it. Mm -hmm. And then a German officer came over from the other side and looked at it and said, started talking to us. We we agreed to ignore him. Yes, I mean, we said, you know, we didn't understand what he was talking about. So finally, he uh, ended up coming around and going through the gate and coming over to find our parents and tell them that we were wasting uh, laundry soap and uh, how bad that was. But but it was, you know, a non-event, basically. So uh, we were supposed to be punished for that. And, of course, after he left, nothing happened. Yes. We never got scared for that or anything like that. So you weren't intimidated. Intimidated, yes. By the the Germans. Right. Interesting. Well, that kind of runs in your family, right? (laughs) Your mother (laughs) tells the armed, you know, soldier back in Athens before you left to to step outside. So I can see that uh, that kind of... uh, Courage, yeah, that attitude is uh, pretty uh, similar. That's right. Um, And any other stories or memories that you have of Bergen-Belsen? Oh, yeah. When when, uh, we used to get packages at the beginning, and it turns out that in those days, most... Uh, Red Cross packages had cigarettes as part of it. When uh, we came there at uh, our first month or so... In Bergen-Belsen. In Bergen-Belsen, that uh, since people had different... Their packages, they were... Sometimes they were trading food for some other kind of food. And uh, a father that had some money... And uh, which was very ridiculous in those days to to pay for something in the concentration camp because so the person that got the money what were they going to do with, with it? it? Yeah. <laughs> That's that 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 I was wondering about myself. You in, as a child, as a child, you were well. They got the money, but so what? So, yeah. That's, so what? I think sometimes they paid the Germans actually money to get something, and I, I understand that was fine. Yeah. There were people that were hooked with uh, tobacco. They traded all their food for cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And uh, they died. We were getting our usual two meals a day that they brought in, and in the towards the end, it ended up being just uh, uh, potato soup. It was very very hard distributing because you had to ladle the the soup to people. It was very difficult for the person that was actually doing the distribution or the ladling to uh, try to be fair Mm -hmm. and make sure that everybody got uh, a little bit of potatoes in the the juice that was in there. 
my father was considered to be of high integrity, so a lot of times he was the one that was distributing the food. That's interesting. But uh, there were complaints quite often about people that felt that they were shortchanged. The other staple was turnips, and uh, turnips were a very uh, available staple in Germany, and especially towards the end of the war, we ended up eating a lot of turnips. And in fact, we understand that the Germans ended up eating a lot of turnips themselves Mm -hmm. because of the lack of uh, food of other types. They could do a turnip soup, a turnip salad, a turnip mousse, all of those different versions of turnips that uh, the women learned how to cook when uh, we needed to uh, cook turnips. And were you, do you remember being hungry? I don't have to remember being hungry. I felt I I was hungry for uh, at least eight months out of the year. Really? Yes, always, we were always hungry. What was to happen to this little boy and his family? How is it they were to escape from the concentration camp? Though it seems like fiction, the final episode of the series Through the Eyes of a Child reveals the gripping culmination of Maurice's experience in Nazi Germany.